I want to jump right into the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 3. So if you guys have been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been actually going through a series in the book of Acts. Uh, we paused for several weeks looking at the, uh, the subject of Jesus' coming into this world. We call that Advent. Um, so we're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 3, uh, I want to read this morning, pick it up at about verse 11. We'll read from about verse 11 to around verse uh, 16. Give you a little bit of the backstory, then I'll jump in because we're kind of uh, coming into the middle of a chapter and the middle of a story. And the backstory goes something like this um, uh, Jesus began this brand new work. People's lives are being changed, transformed. Uh, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion, He just came to give people life, and people's lives are being transformed and changed. Uh, so you have this small gathering of people. Uh, we call them the 12 apostles. One of them betrayed Jesus, his name was Judas. This small movement went from being uh, frightened and just terrified of the Romans to being this movement that literally began to circle out and change the world. And so what we see is um, these guys, these people, really, in a lot of ways, just kind of carried on with the rest of their life. Um, And so what we see Peter and John at the beginning of the chapter, Peter and John were apostles, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Uh, They were going to the temple at what was kind of known as the hour of prayer. So as they're going to the temple, this normal, typical, routine day, uh, they noticed that there was a guy, he was a a beggar, and he was lame, meaning obviously he couldn't walk. And so the best that we can account for is he's been doing this uh, for almost three decades of his life. So imagine going to a typical routine of your life, a routine, normal, daily routine, and seeing a person that's there all the time. That person on the street corner, that person you may have never even stopped to ask them their name. They're just a figurehead to you. They're just a, a nameless individual. And this is that person sitting right there. So this person interacts with Peter and John, asks them a question. Could you give me some money, right? So he's a, 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 he's a beggar. He's begging for money. And Peter and John basically respond to this guy saying, we don't have any gold, we don't have any money, but what we do have is, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. So Peter reaches out his hand, picks the guy up, he stands up. And so we looked at this a couple weeks ago, probably none of you would remember it, but what we said is that this guy was not in any way, shape, or form expecting to be healed that day. Really, his expectations were probably like right here. Maybe make some money, maybe buy some falafel, and have a typical day. Uh, What God expected for this guy's life was to radically change everything, was to give him a brand new body. Um, He had no expectation of that whatsoever, but God had different expectations. Using Peter and John literally changed this guy's life. So what we see now is this massive crowd of people notice this guy who went from being lame and a beggar to now, uh, the scripture says, leaping, running, leaping, and praising God. So this guy has literally gone totally Pentecostal. He's running around, jumping, screaming, shouting, uh, dancing. They're in the temple courts. It's awesome. And people are tripping out because they're like, this, is, this, this looks like that beggar that has always laid on the mat for the past three decades. Um, what's happened to him? So that's the question that we're wrestling with now is, is what's happened to this guy? How did this happen? And that begins to give us, or bring us sort of into the story. It's a segue into the story. Then Peter then begins to respond to that question as to why this guy went from being a beggar, a nameless guy, nobody knew, uh, uh, completely you know, grounded to being a guy that's walking, leaping, and praising God. So this is now how we enter into the story in verse 11, where Peter begins to explain to us. And uh, it says that while he clung, this is the guy, he clung to Peter and John. So imagine he's healed now. He's like hugging these guys, holding onto their legs. He's so excited. Um, he says, and all the people were utterly astonished, and you would be too. It says that they ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's uh, Temple. So in other words, the idea is that they're kind of moving along, and this guy's holding on to Peter and John, and these uh, crowds of people are asking Peter and John, what's going on? And then Peter in verse 12 says, and when he saw this, he addressed the people. And here's what he begins to say. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, and why do you stare at us as though by our own power, our own piety, that we have made this guy walk? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, that he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and you denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. 
Verse 16, he says, and his name, Jesus, by faith in his name, Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you now see and that you also know, that by faith or through faith in Jesus, he has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. That's where I want to stop. There's a lot more that we can read and a lot more time that we can spend in. Otherwise, this would turn into a three-hour sermon, so I'm going to be nice to you and just keep it pretty short and sweet. But let me pray real quick, and we'll jump in and take a look at what God has to say to us. So, God, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would just open our hearts, our minds. And again, God, as we pray often, we don't want just simple information. We don't just want to have our minds informed or our thoughts uh, stirred. God, we want to have our affections uh, moved. We want to, God, have hearts that fall in love with you. God, we want to have minds and uh, an imagination that is astonished by the works that you do. God, we pray that you would transform us. We want to be followers and disciples of Jesus. We want to be people that expect you to do these types of great things that you did 2,000 years ago today, right now, on the corner of Food for Less, downtown slow, in our street corners, in our cities, in our workplaces, in our schools. You're the God that does great things, and we ask you that you would move upon our imaginations, and God, allow us to be able to just envision and believe and trust that you want to do these things through us. So God, we pray that you would help us to understand what you have to say and transform our hearts and our lives through it, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, I want to really just kind of point out, I mean, Peter addresses these people, and what's, what's really interesting to begin with is the way Peter addresses these people. And um, one of the things I've mentioned before that a lot of times when we, we read our Bibles, most of us, we read our Bibles without this wealth of background and backstory, background information. Um, and what I mean by that is most of us are not Jewish, um, which means that, you know, a lot of us, we come into Christianity or come into this thing called Christianity um, with uh, various forms of information, a baggage in some cases, that it actually is like a filter, and it impacts and affects the way that we actually read the Bible. So in, in a lot of times as well, we go, and we don't really know all the great details that these guys would have been reading. So for one, Peter's addressing a bunch of people that are Jewish. So these would have been people that would have been steeped in the Scripture. They would have known this long story or history of God in the way that God was working and moving throughout the lives and the course of history of his people. So what we see here is that Peter basically starts his message out by responding to the people by saying, you know, men and brethren, so he's respectful. He says, um, our God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he actually uses this, um, this way of describing who Yahweh is, who God is, by describing God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So um, it's kind of raised the question, why does he respond in that type of a way? Now, one of the things I've said before is that if you were Jewish and you were familiar with Scripture, um, phrases like this would be like a hyperlink, all right? It'd be like blue underlined text that when you come across this, it would immediately take your mind elsewhere. But if you don't have the backstory in your mind, if you're not familiar with a phrase like this, it's just, it's just information that really doesn't make a lot of sense. So the Jews that would have been hearing this, when they would have heard Peter say, um, the God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that would have been a phrase that would have been totally familiar to them, and it would have taken them immediately back to the story in the book of Exodus. And it would have been in around Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 or so, something like that, where Moses, if you guys are familiar with him, um, he was a main character in the story of Exodus. So if you're familiar with that story, what happened was Israel, this massive nation, basically had gone down into slavery. There was a big uh, famine in the land. They didn't have food. And the only people that had food were the, uh, the, uh, the Egyptians. And so they ended up going down to Israel, or down as a nation Israel, down into Egypt. And they ended up at a long duration period of time becoming slaves in and throughout the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh, this taskmaster, began to basically put them to slave work. So imagine them, this nation that was powerless. They didn't have an army. They didn't have the means to defend themselves. They didn't have representatives to turn to. They didn't have a vote. They were just this nation that was completely oppressed within another large mega nation or military might or empire. So, in other words, think of the Kurdish people living in Turkey, all right? Um, Or, I'm sorry, the Armenian people in Turkey or the Kurdish people living in northern Iraq. So you can think of it this way. These are just 
people that don't have a voice. So here they are, down there. God ends up raising up this guy by the name of Moses. And Moses becomes a leader. Ironically, in the story, Moses actually has ties to the house of Pharaoh. Um, Because shockingly, is the backstory to this, Moses was thrown out sort of as a child, ends up being taken up and adopted into the household of Pharaoh, raised in the household of Pharaoh, so he knows what's up as far as all things Egyptian, right? So Moses tries to help the people of Israel out. Around age 40, things completely backfire. He ends up basically becoming um, a refugee. He leaves the nation. So for the next 40 years, he's living in this area called the backside of the desert. So for 40 years, Moses is kind of just rotting on the backside of the desert until one day Moses is out. By this time, he's around 80 years old. He's out and about, walking around, doing whatever you do in the backside of the desert, and he sees something that's shocking. It's a, bro- it's a bush, and it's burning. But the thing that's shocking Moses about this bush is that even though this bush is burning, it's not being consumed. It's not going away. It's still there. And all of a sudden, he walks up to this bush, and the bush then begins, or at least a voice from the bush begins to speak to Moses. And the bush basically says something to Moses. It says, Moses. Moses is shocked by the voice and begins to talk back to the bush. And he's like, uh, who are you? And then the voice comes back and says, I'm God. I'm Yahweh. And Moses is like, how do I know you're Yahweh? How do I know you're really God? And then God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, the lineage that you come from, Moses, your true self, your true genetic background, your backstory has been consumed by uh, me. And I, I, I am the God. I'm not raw. I'm not another deity or another entity or some nameless force or power in the, in the universe. I'm Yahweh. And I'm the God that was worshipped by your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then basically God enlists Moses to do something, which if you're familiar with the story, it ends up leading to sort of the freedom of the people of Israel. They end up basically being set free. So the story that we see here that Moses, or I should say that uh, Peter's tying into, he's connecting what's happened, this event that's happened on the Temple Mount, he's connecting it to the story in Exodus chapter 3 by way of using these statements, these phrases, or these hyperlinks, if you think of it that way. And he's basically saying this, that the story about Moses and the burning bush that God affirming his very presence uh, is tied into the fact that God is about to make a promise to rescue an oppressed people group. And really what Peter's basically trying to tap into is to say, look, if you want to understand what's happened, men of Israel, you've got to understand something about Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the Exodus. He's the God who sets free people that were once captive or people that were once enslaved. So in other words, if you want to understand how this man who was a slave to his own inability to walk or his cripple, you have to understand the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And that's how he begins to address these people, to lead them to understand, to make sense of what's just simply happened. So it begins to basically describe, and we'll really take a look at two things this morning, we'll wrap it up. One, we'll take a look at Jesus as being the agent of salvation. So there you go. I just, spoiler alert, just told you kind of what is going on here. Gee, uh, we, uh, there's, you know, no, no, uh, no, there's an obvious E on the I chart there, that Jesus is the agent of salvation. But how Peter describes Jesus is really important. And I want to take a moment, just consider the ways in which Peter describes Jesus. So we'll take a look at the agent of salvation, and finally we'll finish with really the means of salvation or how that salvation becomes realized, because that's also a central theme throughout this story as well. So first, let's take a look at the agent of salvation. Peter basically describes Jesus in three specific ways, and it's really important to notice the titles that Peter chooses to use to identify who Jesus is. So first of all, Peter describes Jesus as servant. He describes him as the holy and the just one, and then thirdly, he describes him as the author of life. Let's take a look at each one of those. First of all, the servant. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, listen to that again. He says, uh, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Some of your translations actually might render that word rather than servant as the word son. Um, And a lot of scholars have identified that actually that word that's used there could be used as the word son or servant. 
Now, the Jews actually, in Jesus' day, they had a translation of the Bible that they used. It was called the Septuagint. So um, if you imagine, most of the Jews that lived in Jesus' day, they spoke common language, which was Greek. They probably spoke some Aramaic as well. But the, the main translation that they would have read the Bible in was, would have been Greek, which came over from Hebrew. And the way that the word that was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek uh, that's used here uh, for servant is also really another important passage that was used in the Old Testament. And um, it would have uh, echoed this passage from a guy by the name of Isaiah. Um, if you're familiar with the story of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet, and he spoke about 700 years or so before Jesus came. And one of the most profound uh, prophecies uh, that Isaiah envisioned or imagined or thought about or had written about was in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And it's a passage that describes Yahweh's servant. Um, so the idea that we want to look at right now or consider is that Peter basically describes Jesus as the servant. So again, think hyperlink. So if you're a Jew living in the first century and you hear the word this servant that did this healing, immediately your mind would go back to the prophecy of Isaiah 52 or 53. So let's take a look at that and just see who this servant is of Jehovah and why this is such a significant statement that Peter makes here. So Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 begins by this statement. It says, behold, this is God speaking by the way. He says, behold my servant. So in other words, it's like God saying through Isaiah, hey, take a look at, observe, uh, be aware of my servant. So who is the servant? How are we going to identify whoever the servant is? How will we know what the servant of Yahweh looks like? He goes on to describe, verse 14. He says, his appearance, so he actually begins to describe for us some of the detail that we can look at and identify to determine whether or not this person is the servant of Yahweh or not. And then he goes on to say, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. Next slide, beginning in verse 53 or uh, chapter 53, verse 2, he says, He had no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Uh, another way of thinking about that, he was familiar with grief. He knew what grief was. It was another translation that describes his way. He like reached out and embraced, hug, gave a big bear hug to an embrace of grief and sorrow and loss. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Next slide goes on to describe him as saying, Surely he has borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And here's a real important last phrase. And by his wounds, we are healed. So again, this passage would have been very familiar to all the Jews because they would have been looking for, hoping for one day, this prophecy of Isaiah would be fulfilled. And so here's Peter basically saying, you guys want to know how this guy, gone from being crippled or lame or unable or incapable of walking to actually being made fully, completely whole to where now he's running, leaping, and praising God, consider the servant. <laughs> so you can imagine he's pointing their minds back to this rich, uh, biblical history that they would have understood. And this is what Peter's trying to say, that this person that's now whole is whole because of or on account of whoever this servant is. We know, obviously, the servant is Jesus, and that's his whole point. The second thing he describes Jesus as is the holy and the just one. Again, this echoes Isaiah, the holy and the just one. Think about it this way. Holiness is really this Godward focusedness. And what we know about Jesus' life is that the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, they always knew Jesus to be perfectly morally good, morally pure, never doing anything to break the laws of Yahweh. In fact, always doing everything that was in accordance with Yahweh's desire or will. Jesus never lied. He never pulled the wool over people's eyes. He wasn't deceptive. He wasn't duplicitous. He didn't betray people. He didn't steal he wasn't greedy for power or money. And just think about this. He's the king. If he is indeed the king of kings and the Lord of lords, how could he, how would you, if I can put it this way, how would you use your power amidst a bunch of people that are crazy, dopes? Jesus, rather than using power in a way by which to crush other people, he actually uses power in a way to bless other people. So not only is he holy in a very moral way, 
pure type of a way before God. In fact, even Pilate says, there's no wrong that I find in him. In other words, he hasn't broken any laws. There's nothing that I see that Jesus has done by which I should be uh, you know, sending him off to his death for. So the question is, naturally, why did Jesus die? In some ways, you can answer that by saying, just crazy. I mean, we know theologically it was before our sins and whatnot, but it was just a political problem that Pilate let Jesus die because he was tied. He was a part of the system of crazy, deceptive, messed up politics. But the fact is that we see is that Jesus was holy. But the word that he also uses here is that he's just. Some of your translations might say righteous. And this is the word that basically describes kind of the horizontal relationship with other people. How did Jesus treat other people? And this is where we begin to kind of get into an understanding. How did Jesus respond to people? If you look at Jesus' life, every time Jesus encounters people, he's always doing something that's for their good. Whether it's a person who's got this leprous disease, so he's an outcast, uh, he is not able to be part of what's happening within the life of the people of Israel, Jesus heals them. If it was a person that was unable to see Jesus opens their eyes. If it was somebody that was plagued by their sins or like the guy that was um, there in the tombs and he was just tormented by demons and fears and anxieties, we're told that Jesus touches him and he's there left in his right mind. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's always doing good to other people. In other words, Jesus is treating people like human beings. (laughs) In other words, Jesus treats people differently than how you and I oftentimes treat people. Have you noticed how easy it is to just belittle people, especially those you don't even know? I mean, it's easy to say things about people or to do things towards people. I mean, think about how we oftentimes treat people that we do know, how shameful oftentimes it is. Think about how we oftentimes treat people that we don't even know. And yet Jesus, every single time he encountered people, whether he knew them relationally or didn't know them, he was always humanizing them. I mean, there was one occasion where there was a gal, there's a lady no one really knows who she was. She was just described as an old lady with a messed up back. Kind of my version of that translation. But she was an old lady with a messed up back. And it says Jesus encounters her and he speaks to her and he says to her, daughter of Abraham. Now that statement might not mean a lot to us, but that statement is a totally, completely humanizing statement. It'd be like walking up to a prostitute who is nothing more than just an object and calling that person by their name. First, middle, and last name. And saying, this is who you are. You're not just an object. You're just not a piece of meat. You're not just something for consumption for the public. You are a human being that resembles and bears the image of God. Jesus was always doing this with people. The opposite of holiness and justice um, really comes out by way of Worship, uh, meaning idolatry and injustice. So if you look at the majority of human beings, what we fall prey to is idolatry and injustice. That's a good definition of who we are as human beings. We are, by the natural state, natural condition of who we are, we are idolaters, and we act always in an unjust type of way towards other people. We don't treat people rightly. We don't show them the kindness, the respect that they're due. We all fall prey to that. We are all broken and flawed human beings that participate in that, but not Jesus. And that's what Peter's saying, is that it was a holy and just one. And you all know it. You all know that he's never done anything wrong. He's, he, even Pilate declares him as innocent, and yet he betrayed him. This is, this is the one who's healed this guy. He's never done anything but good towards other people. And that's what Peter's saying. He's identifying through the holy and just one. Again, these would have had echoes of Isaiah. So what Peter's basically insisting on is that, in essence, saying that, look, if you want to understand, really truly understand what's happening and what has happened to this man, you need to understand something about the story of the Exodus, whereby Yahweh enters in and sets captives free, And you need to know something about the story of Isaiah's suffering servant, who was crushed so that those who are crushed can go free, who bore the sin and the brokenness and the oppression of many so that those who bear the sin and the oppression and brokenness of all can actually be given freedom and wholeness. And what Peter's saying, if you want to understand how this guy's been made whole, keep listening. 
It's about Jesus, and that's where he takes them. Final thing to take a look at, he describes Jesus as the author of life. Take a look at that final little passage. I think it's right there in verse 15. He says, and you killed the author of life. Now think about that irony for a second. He's like, you guys killed life itself, the author of life. Not just life, but the author of life. So this phrase that he uses here is kind of an interesting phrase because the word author can also be um, translated as pioneer. Um, It's really somebody that has gone through the entire whole experience of something has come out the other side. Um, When I think about a pioneer, I think about uh, times when I've gone uh, mountain biking, especially on new trails that I've never gone before, and I've gone with people that have been very familiar with those trails. Um, I I know that if I'm going to go on a brand new trail I've never gone on before, I I know that my number one object is to stay as close behind as the person that has already done it before. Because if they get too far ahead of me to where I cannot observe them or see them, I'm not going to be aware as to what turn is going to be coming up next. And this is really the word that's basically being used here. It's a pioneer. Jesus is being described as, in this word, as one that has gone through the entire experience of death, decay, and corruption, and he has come out the other side. And it's what basically Peter finishes by describing, that even though you killed the author of life, even though you denied the holding the just one, God raised him. And what Peter's basically saying is that this is the Jesus that you all know about. That he's not just some sort of dead icon. He's not just some sort of great spokesman or speaker or teacher or communicator or uh, advice giver or mentor or guru or somebody that you would look to for help or information. But he is indeed, in reality, one who is totally, completely acquainted with every facet and form of human suffering and brokenness and death and has gone through that to the other side of life again. And he says, it's this Jesus that we all bear testimony to, that we see, we know that's by the name of Jesus that this man is alive and made whole and well today. Look, at the end of the day, Christianity is not simply about reciting ancient wisdom. And I realize a lot of times modern Christian churches have this tendency to kind of have this great value of Jesus, be like, we love Jesus, he's awesome. He's a great teacher, great mentor, great advice giver. But the reality is that that's not at all what Christianity is about. Christianity is about a resurrected, living, powerful, life-giving God that enters into, the Bible would describe it this way, it's God's kingdom God's realm, God's order, God's orderliness coming into our disorderliness, our brokenness, our darkness, and exchanging our darkness for life and light. And reading our hearts of its loneliness for love and being loved and knowing that we're loved, knowing that we're accepted. It's what Christianity offers. It's a living God that stepped down and stepped into our lives and still doing this stuff to this day. And this is what Peter's basically describing. So this finishes with the final question of how was all this basically realized? And what we see, in other words, is the means of salvation. I'll finish with this thought. The means of salvation, Peter clearly points out, he says in verse 16, he says, and it's his name, Jesus, the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and you know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health. That word perfect health is a really unique word. That's the only time in the New Testament that actually is used here. But it's another word, it's a word that has been translated or others have kind of described it as complete wholeness. That this guy has entered into a completed wholeness. I guess it's supposed to be complete. Complete wholeness. That this man has gone from a process of being crippled and broken and incapable to take care of himself to absolute, complete wholeness. All because of something that Jesus did. So here's the thing. Jesus is still doing things today. Two things I want to finish up on and just consider. On the one hand, speak to those of us that are Christians. The question I would have is, do we really believe this? I mean, do we really believe that God still wants to do great, miraculous things like this? Now, again, please understand, when Peter describes by faith in his name, he's made this guy whole, 
Jesus is, Jesus is not some sort of like magical name that if you say it right or you rub the like side of the pot right and you get the answers you want. Jesus is not our servant. He's, he's, he's not the one that does everything for us because we demand it or we say something right. He's not a genie. Jesus is God. And there are times when he does not do for us what we ask him to do. But there are times that he does do things for us because we ask him to. I know it sounds very confusing. But the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes we say things like, well, we don't really know if he wants to heal, so why even bother asking? But what if he does want to heal? What if he does want to move? What if he does want to set you free? What if he does want to help you in the midst of your debt and your crisis and your terrified state or your anxiety? What if he does want to lift you up out of that pit of despair? What if he does want to rescue your soul and help you or bless you or bring you into a state of abundance? What if he does want to do that? See, oftentimes we're like, well, why even bother asking because we're not really sure. Why not switch it around and say, why not try asking and keep asking and trusting that maybe God wants to do something great? It's what I love about this story of the early church and the church leaders, that really all these guys are doing is just going about typical status quo life. They're not on a mission trip. They're not like, okay, guys, it's church day today. Let's go do good things for God. They're like, let's just go to the temple and pray. I mean, that to a first century Jew is as status quo as you waking up in the morning saying, well, let's go to Nautical Bean and get a cup of coffee. You know, let's go to Sally Lou's and get a scone, right? But as you're entering into that realm, that world, that life, that wherever it is that you're going, these guys walk with their eyes wide open. They just recognize, hey, the Holy Spirit, God's power, God's presence is with us everywhere we go. And we bear witness and testimony to this resurrected Christ. And maybe, maybe there are people that God will bring into our lives that God wants to shower his life through us upon them. So I would suggest a lot of times, I think we miss the great things that God wants to do is because we're so consumed with stuff in our lives. We're so terrified that maybe something good might happen that the Holy Spirit moves and works through us that we're terrified that maybe if we try and something doesn't happen, we're afraid of failure, we're afraid, and oftentimes we're not aware, we don't live in a state of being aware of the need around us, or the power of the Holy Spirit within us. I think the other church, that's, that's why we read stories like this, and we're just shocked by them, we're like, whoa, it's amazing, but again, as I just want to say, is I want to remove the mysteriousness out of that, that's just normal Christianity, that's not like uber Christianity. That's just regular status quo Christianity. People living their day-to-day life in their day-to-day field of work or operation, trusting the power of a powerful God to do great things in people's lives. Taking steps of faith, just trusting. I mean, imagine Peter bending down and being, let me help you up. I mean, honestly, it'd be really frank with you. If, if that was me in that state, I would be like, think I want to do that because what, what, if, what if a person falls back down again? That'd be a bummer. Like, that's not a good way to start your ministry. Like, but the point of the matter is they didn't really care. They just, like, let's take steps of faith, trusting that God's going to do something. And as they were stepping out in faith, doing this, God was opening his doors and doing miracles and setting people free. And people were asking questions. And Peter's responding by pointing them back to Jesus. And I would suggest God still wants to do that today. The flip side of this is, what if you're in a place of the guy in need? What if you're the guy? What if you would identify with the person that's crippled, that's incapable, unable to move? What if you are the one that you are paralyzed by anxieties or fears or loss or grief or discomfort or insecurities or your own sin or your own awareness of the fact that you and God are not in a good relationship right now? My encouragement to you is, what if the way that you began to view God was one of, maybe he has the power to heal me, and I'm going to go to him. And if that means making myself vulnerable, if that means walking up to someone I might not even really know and just saying, could you, could you pray for me? I'm in debt. It's over my head. It's crushing me. I feel like I'm the people of Israel under this yoke of oppression, under this pharaoh. It's called Capital One credit card. 
right? It, it's, it's under this whatever. I mean, the fact of the matter is, what, what if we began to live our lives in such a way of just saying, you know, what if God wants to help me? What if God wants to set me free? What if God wants to bring me a sense of peace and calm in the middle of this insanity? What, what if God wants to do that? But we never really know because we never ask. We just stay in our own isolation. And we never enter into this. I'll give you an example of how this happened this past week. It was really cool. I was chatting with a guy. Uh, Facebook me and responded to him. Contacted him back. And he was saying how a couple weeks ago we were praying for people. And he had mentioned how uh, he had some people pray for him. And he said he felt like God just wanted to dig a little bit deeper and have other people pray for him. So he contacted me and I called him up and didn't get a chance to hear his, the, the full scenario of what's going on with his life. But I said, you know, um, let's, after the first year, let's get together and hang out. And you can tell me the whole thing, what's going on. You know, but right now, God knows what's going on. And, and let me just pray for you. So I just spent a little bit of time just praying over him. I had no idea what I was really praying for. Um, I had some sense that there's some scenarios going on. I was just praying for some specific things. And, and at the end of that, he just goes, you know what? He goes, honestly, he goes, I feel like at least one of the really big areas in my life right now that was completely overwhelming me, and I was filled with total terror and chaos, I feel like I have complete peace over that right now. I said, you know what that is right now? Like, that's, that's something we celebrate, because that's God invading your life with his kingdom. His peace, his calm, his kingdom of righteousness, his kingdom of goodness is invading, coming into your life and removing those anxieties that were crushing you. That's awesome. That's God's kingdom advancing. That's, that's God basically saying, I love you so much. One of these days, my kingdom, which is so good, which will one day cover the entire planet, I'm going to bring a little bit of a trailer into your life right now, a little bit of a spoiler so you can sense it, taste it, feel it. It's an appetizer of what's to come. But, you know, one of the cool things is he says, you know, I, I would have never sensed that had I not asked someone to pray for me. I said, you're right. That's, ex- that's exactly right. And I wonder how many of us remain in our statuses of crushing weight and oppression and brokenness and sin and defilement, all these things that we are being crushed underneath the weight of, simply because we, for whatever reason, don't want to be like the beggar and stretch out our hand and say, would someone come and pray for me? Would someone come help me? So in closing, we have a God that has come near. That's what the whole Christmas season, Advent, is all about. It's this reiteration, re-entry into the story. That we have a God that's not distant. We have a God that has come near. We have a God that doesn't say, you have to come find me. I mean, there are elements in which God says, seek me. That's a whole other point. But God's saying that I will come to you and reveal myself. I will show my kindness, show my grace. And it's a God that says, trust me. Trust me. And that's what we see Peter basically saying. It's by faith in the name of Jesus. The name, again, is not magic. The name is basically a, it's a handle. It's a way of identifying the sum total of who the person of Jesus is is what the name is all about. And so what Peter's saying is by trust in the name of Jesus, God will begin to bring healing. We want to respond right now, and we're going to sing, we're going to respond by Taking communion is a way to remind ourselves of the fact that we have a God that's totally, totally familiar with our brokenness. A lot of times we wrestle with that. We're like, how does God even know what brokenness looks like? Guys, you ask. Because that's exactly the story of the cross. The story of the cross is a God that's deeply familiar with brokenness. That's why Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, takes the bread, breaks it. He says, this bread is... My body, which will be broken for you. We have a God that's deeply familiar with brokenness. And it's because he was broken that we can actually go to him, enter into the life that he gives, and yet come out on the other side whole. How do we know that? Because Jesus is the author of life. He's the pioneer, right? He's the prototype. And those that are following, those that are trusting in this prototype, All that happened to him will inevitably end up happening to those that follow him. That's the invitation, to come trust Jesus. So why don't we all stand? We'll sing, partake of communion. We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to come out from where you're sitting and just get on your face before God, to sing to him, to get on your knees, to just worship God. Um, And we'll pray just a moment. But let me pray for us right now, and we'll sing. We'll respond to God. invite you guys to do the same. So God, I thank you.
for your great love. We thank you, God, that you're near. You're not far. You're not distant. We thank you, God, that you've given us ample evidence for us to look at and to know that you're trustworthy. God, that we can be vulnerable before you because you have been vulnerable before us. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence here in this place right now to search us. God, you know those areas in our hearts and our lives right now that are really raw, where we feel really fragile, where we feel like maybe we're coming undone, we're about to come undone, or maybe we are just a pile of brokenness. But God, we thank you that in the midst of whatever state or condition we're in, we can come to you and trust you, that you're familiar with what brokenness is all about, and that you offer us wholeness. So, respond.
So that guy responded to Peter and John by being willing to trust Christ and extending his hand. Peter took this bold step of faith. Something happened in his life. This guy was made whole. A miracle happened. We believe the same God that still showed himself strong in ways like that, still does stuff like that. And God wants to do things like that. And he wants people to have faith and trust him to do stuff like that. And so if you're here and there are situations going on in your life that you would describe as being, being crippled by sinfulness, your own brokenness, your own sense of inadequacy or insufficiency or defilement or brokenness before God. Maybe you're not a Christian. You want to trust Christ. If you're here this morning, maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you affirm faith in Jesus, but you also just realize your life's just, you just feel fragile, coming undone and broken and whatnot. And there's things that are literally just crushing you. You feel more of a, 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 a servant to fear than you are a servant to Christ. Anxiety would be what more defines your existence than trust in Jesus, a sense of peace in the midst of storm. Um, we believe that God wants to do great things. And sometimes it's just a matter of, like, do I trust God enough to lift up my hand? If you're here this morning, you would like to be prayed for, just for whatever's going on. Like I said, whether you're not a Christian, maybe you just got things that you got going on in your life that are like these crushing weights of oppression on you. You want to be prayed for. Um, just raise your hand where you're at. We want to have people just pray for you. Okay. So if you're here, maybe stand up so people can see you. Sorry, I don't mean to call you out. It's kind of always awkward. Okay, if you see someone raise their hand, just stand around them and pray for them. So if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, maybe leave your seat. This way God left heaven. All right, got it? Leave your area and maybe go find someone and lay hands on them. Um, anybody else? Don't be afraid. Go ahead. This lady, raise her hand. Someone put your hand on them. There you go. All right. Good job. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. Um, we want to pray for you. Anybody else? Anything that's going on in your life, you just need someone to pray for you. So go ahead and start praying for them right now. And just pray for them so they can hear you. Pray. Ask God to give you words to pray for them. Maybe God may want to give you a, a scripture to share with them. Just look around the room. If there's somebody else that's raising their hand. Again, look, at the end of the day, guys, we're, we're family. As a family of people that follow Jesus, this has got to be a safe environment to do this. I mean, it's, it's got to be. There's no judgment. There's no sense of people calling you out. I just did that, so sorry. Um, but the fact of the matter is, it's, it's as a family, we come together and we carry each other's burdens and needs. And one of the simplest ways that we can do that is just by praying for each other and offering to speak in each other's lives. So anybody else, you just kind of like that guy needs help. You just need prayer. Raise your hand where you're at. And people around you will gather around and just lay hands on you and pray for you. Anybody else? Let me pray uh, over you guys. And then we'll just finish with another song. And as we finish, as we worship, guys, let's just use our bodies as these instruments that God's given us. To lift up our voices, to use our hands, to use our bodies as these instruments of, of affection, of love, of worship back to God. So let me pray and we'll sing. And we'll finish up. God, thank you for the healing that you bring. God, you don't always heal in ways that we, we expect. Sometimes it's ways that we're, we're not expecting. Uh, but we pray, God, that you would make your presence known. For those that have raised their hand that are in need of help, in need of salvation, in need of Jesus, we pray right now, God, for them that you would just come alongside them. For those that are here right now that... Uh, haven't raised their hand for whatever reason you know those anxieties that can oftentimes arise even in feelings and circumstances like that but we pray God you know what's going on in their heart we ask that you would come to them even in the midst of their own anxieties and fears God just bring healing bring your presence touch them God we thank you that healing is not connected necessarily to us raising our hand or doing these things. It's connected to faith in Jesus. And so we pray that even those here that just in their heart just trust you to do something, I pray that you would meet them right where they're at. Speak words of comfort to their hearts. Give them life, we pray. 
God, we want to lift up your name and worship you, magnify you, make much of you. So God, as we, uh, as we sing, as we offer our prayer, offer our praise, God, may you be lifted up in this spot. We use our bodies as these instruments back to you to make much of your great name.